uh, I'd like to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 56. Psalm 56. And if you're a guest with us this morning, if you look uh, in, uh, underneath the seat in front of you, you, there's some Bibles there as well, uh, if you need one. Psalm 56. And uh, last week, we actually began looking at Psalm 56, where David was reflecting on one of the most harrowing times in his life, as he fled from King Saul, and he ended up in the hands of the Philistines in the city of Gath. And they wanted nothing so much as to kill him. Now, he managed to escape from there by pretending to be insane, so that Achish, the king, would let him go. And he wrote Psalm 56 as a reflection of that time. And I think he wrote it for two purposes, or at least with at least two purposes in mind. The first one was to record the, the prayer that David prayed when he was in that moment, realizing the Philistines were going to kill him, and that that he was in a bad spot. We considered that last Sunday. David crying out for mercy and deliverance from God under his breath, maybe even silently just within his heart. And we looked at David's uh, faith in God that conquered his fear. But there seems to have been a second reason for writing this psalm. And that is, I think, emphasized by the last two verses. Obviously, we know David didn't, he didn't write the psalm down while he was in the court of the Philistine king, while he was drooling all over himself and clawing at the doors and pretending to be insane. He didn't pull out a piece of paper and say, oh, i got to jot this down, this is really good. Uh, so this is something that he wrote after the fact, reflecting back on it. And he wrote it not just for himself, but for the whole community of Israel to sing when they gathered to worship before the Lord. And we've said this before, and, and, and I, I don't want to belabor the point, but we've talked a little bit about the headings of the Psalms. And I've said that I, I believe that the musical notations come at the end of the Psalm, which means, unfortunately, that most of them have been tacked on to the next Psalm. So you have to look at the heading of Psalm 57 to see to the chief musician set to do not destroy. That's the tune that this was to be sung to. But I think that belongs to Psalm 56. This was a psalm that was intended for the congregation of the children of Israel to sing together. So when they're gathered together to worship the Lord... They're going to sing a psalm that was written by David in a time of great distress and fear when his life was on the line and likely almost over. At least humanly speaking, that's the way it seemed. He's in the hands of his enemies. They want to kill him. If he escapes from them, the only place he can go is back to Saul, and Saul wants to kill him. He doesn't really have a way out. And so they sing, but... In order for this psalm to be really applicable to everyone, David writes this, the last verses of the psalm. I, I consider this to be a coda, if you will, put on the end of the psalm. 
verses 12 and 13. And this really reflects the circumstances that David experienced after he was delivered. And they serve to show all of those people, all of those who worship the true God, how a faithful disciple responds in the wake of God's salvation. So look with me at the last two verses of Psalm 56. Verses 12 and 13, David writes this, Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Before I get into the message this morning, I'd like to just say a word of prayer and ask the Lord's help as we study his word. So pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, again, we are gathered here this morning for the purpose of worshiping you, of uh, glorifying and honoring you. We're gathered here as well for the purpose of being ministered to. And that's why we turn to your word. Because we need to hear from you this morning and we need to, to be reminded of your truth and we need to be directed and instructed and guided. We need to be built up and encouraged by your word. And to do that, Lord, we need to understand it. And so I pray that you'd give us insight and wisdom into your word this morning. And then that you would take the truths of your word and you would press them into our hearts. So that we, ought, we would know how you want us to live, how you want us to respond to the truth. I pray that you would draw us to yourself this morning. Use me as I speak to simply be a, an instrument of reflection that I would reflect you. That others would see you and glorify you. We thank you for what you're going to do in and through us and through me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you may be familiar with an account from the life of Jesus that's recorded in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, where Jesus was approached by ten lepers. Leprosy was a terrible scourge, especially in those days. It was completely incurable. It was... 100% deadly. And yet those men had heard about Jesus. They'd heard about his power to heal. And so when they saw him in the distance, they cried out to him. And they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Of course, I can't help but compare their cries to David's opening line of Psalm 56. Be merciful to me, O God. These men had one final hope they only had one hope left and that was that Jesus would perform a miracle of healing and so they cried out to him now it's interesting Jesus didn't reach out and touch these men touching a leper was forbidden they were unclean but on a previous occasion when a leper had approached Jesus Jesus had reached out and touched him and then had spoken to him and said, be cleansed. And that man was healed. 
But he didn't do that in this instance. These ten lepers, they cried out to him, they asked for mercy, and Jesus told them, go and show yourself to the priest. That was uh, the instruction that was consistent with the Old Testament law of Moses. That if a person had that disease in their skin and they were healed of it, they were to go to the priest and show themselves and the priest would confirm that they genuinely were healed and then they would be able to be restored to the, to the community. And these ten men, this is amazing, they apparently had such steadfast faith in Christ that they turned as a group and began to go to the nearest priest. We don't know where that was. It may have been as far away as Jerusalem. These men were on the border between Samaria and Galilee in the north. It was miles, possibly, for them to find the nearest priest. But they began to go in obedience to Christ's command. It's just demonstrating their faith is tremendous. They weren't kidding when they called him master. When he said go, they went. Well, Luke says that as they went, they were cleansed. You wonder how far down the road they got before they were cleansed? How many steps did they have to take before they realized all of a sudden that their, that their limbs, which had lost feeling and had been, the flesh had been decaying, that they were now able to feel and the flesh was restored? I don't know how far they went. But they realized pretty quickly what happened. And you almost imagine as they're going along and they're all of a the sudden, they're all well, and they begin to discuss among themselves what they should do. And one of them may have said to the rest, you know what, we should go back and we should praise God and we should give thanks for his mercy. The rest of them may have said, well, you know, he said to show ourselves to the priest. So we're outcasts in Israel. I mean, think about it. This is our one chance to be restored to our families and to our people. If we turn back, we might never get another chance. Let's not blow it. And the one man who was a Samaritan must have said, I don't care what you guys do. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to give thanks before it's too late. Luke tells us that man returned to the Lord, that he lifted up his voice, and he gave glory to God. And then he fell down on his face, and he worshiped at Jesus' feet. And he gave him thanks. Of course, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Jesus responded to that man and he asked him. He said, wait a minute, weren't there ten of you? Why is, where's the other nine? Why is there only one of you that has come back? And he expressed sadness that this man, who wasn't even an Israelite, had more love for God and more gratitude for the mercy of God than the other nine who went on their way to the priest to be declared clean. Jesus wasn't surprised by that. You know that. I know that. Because Jesus knew those men, and he knew what was in their hearts. And so it didn't shock him. And while we can't say for certain why they didn't return to give thanks, what we can say is that this one man, this Samaritan, was blessed by Christ. And he was given more than just physical healing because Christ assured him that not only was his physical health restored, 
his moral corruption was also cleansed because of his faith. Now, why do I bring this story up when I said we're considering Psalm 56, verses 12 and 13? Well, because the issue of gratitude and devotion to God is the central point in the account that Luke told, just like it's the central point in David's coda here, to Psalm 56. I also bring this up because ingratitude is rampant in our society, in our homes, in our schools, in our churches, and in our hearts today. I bring it up because it's common for men and women to make solemn promises to God when they're in trouble. But it's far less common for them to keep those promises when trouble has passed. I want to share with you a poem written by Elizabeth Barrett Browning that I read this week. There is no God, the foolish saith, but none, there is no sorrow. And nature oft, the cry of faith, in bitter need will borrow. Eyes which the preacher could not school by wayside graves are raised. And hearts say, God be pitiful, which never said, God be praised. How quickly and easily we cry out to God for help when things go wrong, right? I said last week that I hear all the time from people who want me to pray for them, pray on their behalf in times of trouble. But those same people never had any time for God when things were going well. And what happens after God has delivered them and after God has helped them? Do they return to praise the Lord and give Him thanks? Do they commit themselves to daily worship and obedience of God? No. Their hearts say, God be pitiful. But they never say, God be praised. This is the issue that's at hand here in the closing verses of Psalm 56. I want you to see that there's two different aspects to what David is saying here that I want to focus on. There's what I call the immediate and the ongoing, and that's how we're going to look at these verses. The immediate and the ongoing. The immediate is this, David's thank offerings in response to God saving him from death. And I'm not, just like last week, I'm not going through these verses in order, line by line. You kind of have to see this at the end of verse 12 and the first part of verse 13. I will render praises to you, he says, for you have delivered my soul from death. This is the immediate response of David. I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. And when he says, I will render praises here, he's not talking about lifting his hands and singing a song. He's talking about actual sacrifices of thanksgiving, which he will give in the tabernacle among God's people. Remember, well, actually, if you've been reading in my Pastor's Pulse articles that I've written recently, the thanksgiving offering 
was one of the sacrifices that was spelled out in the book of Leviticus, and it was a specific form of the peace offering. And so if you want to know more about the peace offering, I recommend, as I said earlier, go to our church website and read the article that I wrote a couple weeks ago on the peace offering, Leviticus chapter 3. This was a communal offering. What that means is the animal that was offered was to be eaten on the same day in which it was given. The animal was killed at the tabernacle and portions of the animal were burned on the altar. But it was the fat portions and some of the memorial portions. The meat was not burned on the altar. The meat of the animal was cooked and the animal was to be eaten. The worshiper would gather together with his family and his friends and his neighbors. I mean, think about it. If you're going to offer a bull on the altar, you're going to have to eat the whole thing in one day. That's going to take quite a few people. I'm not sure that we could accomplish that here this morning. That's a lot of food. And so you'd have to get your family, your neighbors, your friends. Hey, everybody, you poor people out there that need a meal, come and eat with us. Let's rejoice in what God has done. That's the way the peace offering worked. Let's rejoice because we are right with God. And he's been good to us. When you offered an offer of thanksgiving, you were saying, God has blessed me. God has delivered me in some way, and I want to thank him and give praise. And so I'm going to offer this sacrifice, and then I'm going to invite all of you to join with me, and we're going to feast together, and we're going to rejoice in God's deliverance. What a tremendous thing that was. And we're going to eat this meal together, and they're going to hold this feast. The animal that had been given over to God, as a commemoration of his deliverance and his blessing. And this was a joyous celebration, and it was not a private thing. You didn't do a Thanksgiving offering and then keep it quiet. It was a big production, and it involved a lot of people. And the whole point of giving thanks and praise to God was so that other people would know, not that they would know how spiritual you were, but that they would know how gracious and loving and faithful God was. Because that's what it was about. Let me tell you what God did for me. How he delivered me. How he helped me. Come and join me at the feast. We're going to talk all about it. That's the idea here. And that's what David is saying he's going to do. He's going to offer peace offerings. Specifically the thanksgiving offering. To the Lord. In recognition of God saving him from certain death that's what he says there you have delivered my soul my life from death now there was no law that required this kind of offering to be given the laws in leviticus that talk about the peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings they explain how it was to be given but they don't compel anyone to give this offering but again the voluntary nature of the offering reflects the help and salvation of God, which it commemorates. God gives his help and his salvation freely, not of duty or obligation. When God delivers his people, he doesn't do it because we have merit. He doesn't do it because we have some power over him to compel him to do it. He does it because of his grace his unearned favor. He also does it because of his mercy, which is his love for us. 
David sets a great example here for us. The immediate response to his deliverance is to offer thanksgiving. And so again, just as it was for David, it is for us. Thanksgiving is the believer's immediate response to God's love. This is how we ought to respond in the moment to the love and the deliverance and the salvation of God is to give thanks, to rejoice, to praise his name. Again, that's why it's so significant when Jesus says to the one leper who returned to give praise to God, he says, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Why? Because the very act of thanksgiving, of coming and falling down at Jesus' feet and giving glory to God, was a demonstration of his faith. Now, as I said earlier, we can say, I think, that the obedience of the lepers demonstrated faith as well. Right? They all went, just as Jesus said. They believed and they went to the priest. But this man demonstrated faith above and beyond those other men. They demonstrated faith for healing from being lepers. They obeyed what Jesus said. They went to be cleansed. But this man came and recognized Jesus as Lord and God. He showed faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And for that, he received an even greater blessing. It was the cleansing of his soul from sin. Like I said, it's easy for men and women to cry out for mercy from God when they need his help. But how few of them are willing to fall down at his feet and worship him for the very mercy that he has shown. There's more here, though, in Psalm 56. Sure, we see David's gratitude, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's a tremendous example. This was the immediate response. This was the, the, the spontaneous response, if you will. But what we skipped over at the beginning of verse 12, David speaks here about vows that he made to the Lord. Vows made to you, he says, are binding upon me, O God. I believe that this speaks not of the immediate response, but of the ongoing response. The ongoing response of David's worship. For David, it was his vows of obedience and devotion to God who saved him. He's talking here about vows that he made, and I think, as I said earlier, it's providential that Numbers 30 was on the calendar for today. We read there, if you remember, Numbers 30 and verse 2, or Edward read to us actually, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Vows were another area of voluntary worship, like the, the offering of thanksgiving that we already talked about. No one forced David to make vows to the Lord. But the moment that he made them, he was accountable for them. That's what Numbers 30 tells us. And the only exceptions there were in situations where the person vowing the vow didn't have the authority 
to make or keep the vow. Like a child in his parents' home or a wife who vowed without considering her husband. In those instances, because they didn't have the authority to make and keep that vow on their own, they could be overruled. But in every other instance, if someone vowed a vow, the scripture tells us that those vows were binding. Our words matter. The promises that we make matter, and the Lord will hold us accountable for them. Of course, worshiping God is about a lot more than just words. You know, some people have the idea that just saying something is the same as doing something. But of course, we know that's foolishness. A lot of people like to make promises to God because making promises feels good. And it makes them feel like they're really spiritual or they're really committed because they make a promise to God. But when the time comes to actually follow through, when you have to actually make good on what you've promised, then they try to get out of it. Maybe they say it was a mistake. Maybe they make a vow that they have no intention of keeping. Just trying to impress somebody. Or, as we've mentioned before, they're trying to bribe God to get themselves out of a jam. And so they make a vow, a promise to God. God, I'll do this. But they have no intention of ever keeping the vow. These are serious and dangerous errors. You see, when we do that, we're treating God like a good luck charm. If I just, you know, if I just kind of can get God on my side, then everything will work out for me. Or we're treating him like a gullible grandfather up in heaven, you know? And we can just trick him. We'll tell him what, what we want. So he'll give us what we want, but I don't really have any expectation that I'm going to ever have to pay up on it. Nothing could be further from the truth. I think, I think what David says at the end of verse 13 really confirms this because I think that really these two concepts go together. He says, vows made to you in verse 12 are binding upon me. But notice what he says at the end of verse 13. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? It's true. God had saved David from death. He had rescued David from his enemies. Because you remember what David said back in verse 6. If you look there, they gather together. They hide. He's speaking about his enemies here. They mark my steps when they lie in wait for my life. David was saying then that his enemies were watching his steps. They were lying in wait and just waiting for the opportunity to strike so they could take his life. And he confirms in verse 13, you've kept my feet from falling. While my enemies were watching me closely, watching my feet, you protected them and you kept me from straying. What David is doing here is he's, con he's confessing, he's giving testimony that God has proven faithful in the very thing that David asked. But he also explains the purpose for which God had protected him. Why did God keep him safe? Why did God guard his feet when his enemies were watching his steps so closely? Well, he says there that I may walk before 
God in the light of life, the light of life. You get what he's saying here? God didn't save David just so that he wouldn't die. God didn't rescue him just so he would be free to go on and do his own thing. God rescued him. He delivered him so that he could have an ongoing relationship with the Lord. To walk before him. That means to live in his presence. In full view of him, if you will. Without hiding. And with full awareness of the Lord. David is saying, God, you rescued me. You kept me safe. You protected me so that I could live before you. In your sight. This is why David's vows mattered. Because he was living in fellowship with God. He's talking here about a life of worship and a life of devotion to the one who had so graciously saved him. See, God's salvation, his mercy, his rescue, his deliverance and his help. They weren't given so that David could just go on living and doing his own thing without ever giving another thought to God. And if that's true of David, it's true of us. God doesn't save us so that we can just do our own thing. He doesn't just get us out of uh, you know, danger so that we can just have our life and live our life how we want to. The purpose and the intention of God's salvation and rescue is so that we would walk before him in the light of life. David speaks about vows that he made, promises, obligations that he made of himself to the Lord voluntarily. And he says, you rescued me. Now I'm under obligation to fulfill those things, to do what I said I was going to do. And again, this is true for us today. Commitments to obedience and devotion are the believer's ongoing response to God's love. This is how we respond in an ongoing way. Think for a minute with me about what it means to be a Christian. It means that you have recognized that you are a sinner and guilty before God, the righteous judge. Condemned. And yet, that God in his great love has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh and to die as your substitute on the cross of Calvary. And on behalf of his son, God, Offered you salvation, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, by His grace. And when we say that it's by His grace, what we mean is it's a gift, freely given by God. And you receive that gift by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Now, if you're a Christian, is there any sense in which you should consider that God's vows are upon you. Let me put this another way. Is there, any, is there any reason that you as a Christian have an obligation to God to serve Him and obey Him? 
Well, consider for a moment what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Flee sexual immorality. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Couldn't we say that you have an obligation, if you're a Christian, to live a life of purity? What about Titus 2.14? Paul says there that Christ gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. It's not just sexual immorality here. It's every form of impurity that Christ has redeemed us from. I think this is exactly what Paul means in Romans 6. When he says, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Let me say it again. God doesn't save us so that we can live any way that we want. He saves us so that we can live in obedience and submission to Him. Live lives that are devoted to Him. Well, you might say, well, I haven't made any vows to God, though. I haven't made any promises to God. Well, if you've trusted in Christ, and if you've made a public profession of your faith in Christ, and the way we do that, by the way, we talked about this a few weeks ago, is baptism, right? Being immersed in water in public, that's a public profession of your faith in Christ. Then the answer to that is, yes, you have made vows to the Lord, obligated yourself. You traded darkness for light, hatred for love, sin for righteousness, and death for life. But Jesus didn't die just to give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. He died so that you could walk before God in His very presence in the light of the living. I think it's interesting that Jesus referred to this last line of Psalm 56 in the Gospel of John, chapter 8 and verse 12, when He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of This is the reason Jesus came into the world. To shine as a light. So that you and I could walk no longer in darkness, but in the light as we follow Him. I'm afraid, maybe, at times we have forgotten the vows that we made to God. David here in the end, these closing verses of the psalm, applying this song to all of the children of Israel, all of those who follow and worship the Lord, has described what it means to worship God. Immediate acts of praise and thanksgiving and ongoing acts of devotion, commitment to obedience to the Lord. And if you don't recognize that in your own life, then maybe it's time for you to get serious about where you are with God. 
if you claim to be a Christian, to trust Jesus as your Lord, but you have no intention of ever following him, no intention of serving him with your life, if you cried out for mercy when you were in trouble, and you wanted God to help you, but you had no intention of giving him thanks and praise and falling down and worshiping him, because he's just an escape, he's just a way out, then it's time for you to trust in him today. For you to cry out to him for mercy and walk before him in the light of life. Let's pray.